Welcome to Eternal Impact, how biblical characters and stories have changed lives today. I am your host, Aaron Matthew Kaiser. Since this is the premiere episode of the series, I wanted to take a moment and let you know what to expect as we move forward. The goal of Eternal Impact is to help you better relate to the characters and stories in the Bible. These aren't just words on a page. These are the lives of actual historical figures that lived, breathed, laughed, cried, and dreamed, much as you and I do. Their lives have been captured for us in these stories so that we can learn from them. I have often found that many Christians have a favorite biblical character or parable, one that they relate to more than others. Perhaps they put their foot in their mouth as often as Peter did and are constantly getting in trouble for speaking before they think. Or they're lacking of self-confidence as Gideon was and they are constantly thinking, surely God, you haven't sent me. Maybe they read the parable of the prodigal son and they see their life parallel the brother who stayed behind and got jealous. Therefore, the central premise of Eternal Impact is that we will sit down with pastors and those in Christian ministry to identify and discuss what part of the Bible most resonates in their lives. The end result will hopefully be something that is more substantial than an interview and more conversational than a sermon. You'll not only feel like you know our guest, but the biblical passage our guest most identifies with. To start this series off, we begin close to home for me with one of my pastors, specifically the pastor I sit under every Sunday, Josh Thompson of Legacy City Church. We will walk through his own personal story that is filled with heartbreak and hard times, yet you will see how God moved and worked through it all and turned something very evil into an instrument for his good. That will lead us to the life of the patriarch Joseph, a man destined to do great things for his family and nation, but only after he would be sold into slavery by his own brothers and imprisoned for a crime he was falsely accused of. So let's jump right into it. Josh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aaron. It's a joy to be on the show. Appreciate it. I kind of wanted to start with just what your weekly preparation to teach is. Mm-hmm. Weekly preparation uh, for my studies on Sunday. Basically, um, I will read the text during the week sometime, kind of get an understanding of the text, sometimes read different translations so that I can see it from different angles. And then um, I kind of have an idea of where I'm going with the text. So my general outline is I'm obviously creating a giant question in the beginning, I'm trying to figure out what the point of the sermon is what the point of the text is really. Um, Then the big question mark comes in the beginning. The text is the answer to that question. And then I try to conclude uh, with the answer or summarizing the points um, of the text. But uh, one of the most important things in prep is obviously getting to the context, right? I mean, really understanding what it's saying. So you need to read the before chapter, you need to read the after chapter, and you need to understand the book. Because oftentimes we'll just pull one verse out and think that we've uh, discovered something great, but we missed the entire context. You wouldn't do this in a children's book, so why would you do it in the Bible, right? Right. So, like um, so many people do that with Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Sure. Yeah, they they have no idea what's what verses before that or what verses after or what context it was written in, who wrote it, who, who they being, were speaking to, who it's being written to. Yeah, exactly. So those are very important things. I'm trying to find the context. This is first. 
then I will take steps to read other commentators to make sure that I'm not an heir. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's not wise to think that you've got it all figured out up front. So you I'm, don't want to read from first or second interpretations. That's right. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. So we. Uh, so I have a couple commentators that I really love and I'll, uh, basically read through their commentaries and, uh, it's great. You get ideas, um, you get context, um, you kind of see where things that you're missing or things that you already discovered that you saw in the text, which is a lot of fun too. And then I start to go to work. It'll take me somewhere between four to eight hours to write the sermon down. Um, so I will, yeah, start typing. I pull out a Word doc and I literally start to go to work. And so again, I build my, my intro. I build the, uh, actually I build the body of it first and then the intro comes later. So the body, then I'll build the points. I'll kind of have my conclusion. I've summarized the whole thing. Then I'll build the introduction or the big question mark for the sermon. After all the meat is, uh, meat and potatoes are taken care of, I start to sprinkle it with, um, some seasoning. Um, these are quotes, illustrations. Obviously, I've already added um, scripture references kind of to every point. Um, what I'm ultimately trying to do in each point of the text as I see it through the scripture is figure out what it meant then, what it means now, and how do we apply it to our lives. It's really that simple. What mm -hmm. it meant then, what it means now in our context and our culture and how do we apply it in real time to our lives? So that's kind of sermon prep. Um, this ends up taking place. The heavy lifting happens Friday, Saturday um, as I head into Sunday. If I prepare too early in the week, to be honest, um, I get so much content and I just start writing and writing and writing and writing. And then I find myself. And then suddenly we've got a three hour sermon. Yeah. You have to really trim it down. So I like um, I've also been doing this for almost 20 years. So I like the uh, repetition towards the end of the week. I like the pressure of it. I like the buildup, um, the anticipation of Sunday. And I also enjoy putting down the freshest thoughts I have so that when Sunday comes, it's, it's extremely fresh. It's not uh, something I was thinking about on Monday. It's something I was really working through Friday, Saturday. So yeah, that's, it's, it's not for everyone, but, uh, everybody finds their own voice. Everybody finds their own rhythms and their own, uh, ways of preparing. And so start with all the basic mechanics, uh, take your 10 to 20 hours a week and start to hone your craft. And five years in, then 10 years in, you start to figure out, you know, your strengths and weaknesses and, and, how to prepare better sermons. Now, the presentation is a whole nother uh, game, but uh, that's preparation. Do you uh, kind of like, I obviously preach through your, your sermon on your own a couple of times or? No. No, you no, don't do not that anymore. All. Yeah, no? I used to. Yeah, I used to though. I used to, uh, in the beginning, um, I would listen to every single sermon I preach. So after I preach it, I would take the recording and go listen to it in a quiet place and just, you know, you know, your ears like shatter at your own voice and trying to listen to yourself fumble and just cause all kinds of problems in the text. Don't go and listen to my early sermons. Uh, there's probably some heresy in there. <laughs> I don't want to be stoned by anybody. Uh, but in the beginning, um, no, I, I, oh yes, I did rehearse or I would read through them. And, uh, but now uh, all it takes is one time reading through and, and really that's happening as, um, as I'm preparing the text. Now, if I don't feel like I've got the entire thing in me, I will read through it basically one time and I'm basically editing. And any other little extra things I don't like, I'm basically trimming off what I don't like and I'm rewording things here and there. But um, 
I've been preaching probably two sermons a week for almost 20 years. So you do the calculation. I started when I was 18, 19 years old, and I'm about to be 40. You know, it's like riding a bike, you know, and maybe not riding a bike. That's a bad illustration, <laughs> but it's like any craft, I should say. So are you the the type of person that you prepare exactly what you want to say and how you want to say it? Or do you kind of do bullet points and then... I write down about 70 to 80 percent of my sermon on paper. So I know about 80 percent of what I'm going to say. And then I leave that little wiggle room. And for me, it's just I, I will write the word explain at the end of a point. And so mm. my mind clicks, uh, explain this, just walk away from the pulpit and start explaining, building this out. I highlight in my sermons as well. Um, my text is in yellow. Uh, my points are in red. My quotes are in blue. And my, um, my story illustrations are in purple. So, And uh, what color are the bad dad jokes that you always start with? <laughs> uh, those actually, they're not completely highlighted, but there is a blue tag on them. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the dad jokes are fun. My pastor, Pastor Greg Laurie, actually uh, encouraged me in that. You know, he said, you know, humor disarms people, you mm -hmm. know, and it's, it's good to use humor because uh, a sermon is so serious and overwhelming yeah. for people at times. They don't know that you're not um, a mean or angry person. So uh, a sermon is not a place to do stand-up comedy. A sermon is a place to be serious and to make points and to exalt God's word. But at the same time, I want people to know I'm not really that mad at you. I'm not angry yeah. at you. Um, so I, I put those dad jokes on the front and it's, it's fun. The, the crowd looks forward to it. Well, I think that's extra important because I remember, and I mentioned this in the intro, that uh, you had said recently, I, I think a couple of times, both on Wednesday night and on Sunday, about your goal as you're preaching is to either like convict you of sin you know, and get you to repent or to condemn you to the point where you leave the church. There right. is no in between. Yeah. And I think with that in mind, that is important bringing in that little bit of humor and, and the different things that you do to lighten what is an important, serious topic and a, and a serious time. I mean, anytime we pull out the word, it is a serious time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The word of God, it, um, it does. It convicts to repentance or it condemns to judgment. And um, it's not my job to do that. It's my job to present the word of God and let it do that. Um, I let it take on its own tone. And um, I just preach exactly what it says and let it do what it's supposed to do. It will accomplish its purpose. It will not, not return void. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings for the sake of doing so or be a jerk on the pulpit. I don't want to do that. You know, I want people to come to know God. I want people to know the Lord Jesus. I want him, uh, them to understand his grace and his love. And so it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, Romans chapter 2. And so I hope that they would see in me speaking truth, that there is a judgment on the horizon and that we are condemned in our sin, that they would be thankful that I would, that I would tell them the truth so that they right. would know they could repent and turn to God and have a relationship with him, be forgiven and get away from all of that condemnation. So yeah, you got, you got to let people know the bad news. So they know what they're being saved from and where the good news really is. There's uh, a video that went viral a few years ago with uh, Pendulette mm -hmm. 
And uh, for those that don't know, Penn Jillette, a famous magician, uh, performer, and atheist. Mm. And he put out a video that was talking about someone had come up to him after one of his shows and gave him like a little Bible or a, a track. I think it was a Bible mm. and, and said, I know you don't, I know you're an atheist, but I, I love you and I wanted to give this to you. And it touched him because he's like, if you believe as we do that you are going to hell without Jesus, like how much do you have to hate someone right. to not speak the truth? Even right. if the truth seems hurtful mm -hmm. because I mean, we all have like basically our own gods of what we think, you know, will get us in, into heaven and the gospel knocks all of that out. Right. The gospel is offensive to people. We should not be, but the gospel itself is. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. We don't need to be mean. We don't need to be uh, jerks on the pulpit, but we can carry the tone of God, you know, and uh, what he's doing in his text, uh, what he's saying through his word. We can carry those tones. So that's what I try to do. You know, I really try to insert myself in the text and explore what's happening, the emotion and the flavor of the text, and then present that to the crowd. And they can see it with their own eyes. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to do any like, you know, switcheroo or any magic trick. It's like, uh, if it's an encouraging text, I hope I wouldn't make it, you know, so condemning. I mean, it's an right. encouraging text, but, it, but, but the opposite is true as well. Like I shouldn't be taking a text that's very uh, sobering and turn around and try to candy coat the thing, you know, to make it so that people don't see what God is saying. So yeah, I'm, I, I like to say I'm just a delivery boy. Uh, delivering the mail. That's it. That's my job as a pastor. And I'm sure you've gone through preaching certain passages that are always the like, oh man, this is the, someone's going to get offended at this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, especially in coming into LA, you know, um, yeah, we were, I wanted to, we want the church to grow. We want to win people for Christ. You know, we want to see people come into relationship with him. And so there is a temptation to want to please the crowd and pleasing the crowd, uh, really is a trap. The Bible actually says this, the fear of man is a snare or a trap in Proverbs. So, you know, fearing what people think is, is kind of, you're setting yourself up for failure. So you got to learn the hard way. You try to please people. It still doesn't work and they still get mad at you and they still leave the church. And so you're like, okay, forget it. I'm going to try to please God now, hundred percent. And uh, at least he's blessed and at least he's pleased, you know, with what we're doing. And um, I believe his hand will be on the church when we do so. And those who are truly desiring to come to Christ will come. They'll be drawn because they know where the truth is. And I believe the Holy Spirit will point people to churches that preach the truth. Well, you're talking about like, especially coming to Los Angeles. I think this would be a good time to kind of go back and talk about the history of the church. You're mm -hmm. coming up, I think around seven and a half years right now. Yes. And so this fall will be eight. Eight years. Yeah. Uh, what brought you to, to plant Legacy City Church? I guess uh, a couple skips and a jump, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't know I was going to be a pastor. I didn't think about this when I was young, like I want to be a pastor. But I got sucked into the pastorate through young people. I just started loving and serving the high school and college kids and trying to minister and bring them to Christ. Before you know it, I'm a pastor. And then I realized I had this teaching gift and preaching gift, and I should probably use that, and it was working. 
I'm like, okay, I guess I got to do that now. And then, uh, and of course I love it. I mean, I love ministering to people. I love seeing people come close to Christ. But then I realized that there was, um, I don't know, there was a, some type of leadership ability or authority that came along with what I was doing. And I could see, and a lot of people were saying that they thought I could lead a church, even when I was young. They're like, oh, you're going to lead a church. You know, and I'd like, really? And I, I, I didn't know if that would happen. So somewhere along the lines, um, the desires showed up in my heart that I either wanted to lead a church, take over a church, or I wanted to plant a church. I remember turning uh, 30 and thinking like, oh man, this is it. Like, I think it's time for me to start thinking this direction. I'd been having conversations with my wife about it. And before you know it, I don't know, it was a year or two late, probably a year later, around 32 or something. Uh, she was like, she gave me a verse. Um, it's the verse, uh, it's a verse in Genesis where Abraham, it said he by faith left his land, not knowing where he was going. He by faith trusted God, um, believing that uh, he would lead him, even though he was leaving his home or his land. Leaving to, everything he knew that made him, that was comfortable. Yes. And not knowing where he was going. So I'm like, oh my, oh my gosh, this is wild. You know, like, Lord, are you calling me to go? Because my wife was now encouraging me to do so. And so that's when uh, I started just trying to figure out where to go. So I grew up an hour and a half from here, Riverside, California. A lot of time in uh, Orange County, um, goofing off down there surfing and uh, hanging out with friends. And But most of my time was in Riverside. And the main reason, it wasn't exactly a spiritual one, I'll be honest. Um, I thought, uh, what is the closest city to me with the most people who have the most mm. non-believers? An hour and a half from me is Los Angeles. There's 10 million people in the county. There's 4 million in the city. And majority of them, I mean, probably over 90% do not know Christ. This is wild. Oh, it's like, talk about a mission field that's right there. And even those that claim they do may right. not have a relationship with them. Right, right. I mean, it's, you know, only God knows. But yes, you're right. Um, a lot of lukewarm Christians or people who claim they're Christian but don't have any connection with God. So yeah, I went to my pastor and said, hey, I would think I want to plant a church in L.A. And he said, well, you know, why don't you just start looking, uh, drive down on your day off and go look for a building. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> he actually said this to me. He said, I don't think a lot of people can plant a church, but I think you could do it. So that was my confidence, you know, my, um, the Lord was with me, of course, but it was cool to see my pastor say, I can see this in you. I think you could probably do it. And so, uh, we searched for eight months and, uh, that's how we landed and found Bridges Academy. But it was Aaron, I mean, 70, 80, a hundred no's. I don't know how many we're just yeah. driving around for eight months, making phone calls. Uh, Hey, can we have a church here? No. Uh, we started in Venice or uh, Santa Monica. Went down to Venice Beach. Went over to downtown LA Arts District. Searched in there. Went over to Silver Lake. Searched in there, and um, it was just no, 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 no. It wasn't like yeah, the price is ten thousand a month. Yeah, the price is twenty thousand a month. It was none of that. It was just no, 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 no. They so, just weren't open to it. Nobody wanted church. Yeah. Nobody. Now wanted the, were these mostly like schools? Schools, um, empty church buildings, uh, mm. one in particular we were going after, uh, it was a Presbyterian church, but it really wasn't anything happening in there. They were not good with it. Yeah. Schools, um, and the arts district, we were looking at, um, all the brick buildings down there. Um, but realized like all this industrial area, probably not going to work, you know? So it was just nose for eight months. And then one place said yes. 
And uh, I didn't even know where Studio City was. I didn't know where Sherman Oaks was. Honestly, I had no idea. I didn't know there were 70 cities in L.A. In a, in I LA didn't County. even know there were 70 cities in L.A. I've been here for 14 years. Yeah, I think it's 70 territories yeah, wow. in L.A. But it's funny because each one of those territories claims that they are L.A. Yeah. You know, and they're all at odds. It's really funny. But um, I didn't know where Studio City was. I didn't know where Sherman Oaks was. Um, so people are like, how'd, how'd you get such a strategic location? You're like right there, Laurel Canyon Ventura Boulevard. I'm like, we didn't. Like, we just <laughs> called around, and this was the only place to say yes to us. It was like, hi, uh, call in to see if you guys would uh, let us use the gym or your facilities, you know, to, we want to start a church there. Uh, could we rent the facility? Yes. Wait, what? Yeah, you can rent it. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, you can rent it on Sunday. It's available to rent. Okay. Uh, what's the price? They name the price. Really? We only need six hours. Can we do this? Yeah, this hourly price for six hours. Okay, we're going to do this. And I called uh, the team back at home, and uh, I told um, my pastors about it, and they said, lock it in right now. We're launching the church in two months. <laughs> wow. Boom. And uh, I put my house up for sale. It sold in eight days. And uh, we... We believe we could take that money and live off of it for a year. We could pay the church rent. We could live off of it. And we could sustain ourselves for a little while. And uh, the church back at home helped us for about five months. And uh, then they said, that's it. Fly out of the nest. Let's go. And they pushed us out of the nest. And by the grace of God, we've been okay for eight years now. Now, the location that we're in right now mm -hmm. is the barn. Yes. And I, I wanted to do it here because I kind of wanted uh, an aspect of the, this is where you preach on the midweek yeah. uh, men's group. Yes. And I kind of liked the aspect of us sitting down where you preach yeah. and, and kind of having that that vibe in that environment. Talk about the story, because this was kind of a, a God thing, too, yes. right? Yeah. We had the school on Sundays, but the, uh, the gym, that's where we're meeting for church. But we had no place to store stuff. We had no plate, no office, you know, no, no, no place to really do Bible study. So I went searching on Ventura Boulevard, uh, trying to find uh, office space. And uh, it started at 4000 a month. And no joke, I had an 1,100 square foot facility tell me it was 39000 Either like 39, oh, 3900 wow. No, no, 39000 I'm like, what? It was right in the heart of Studio City. 39000 a month. I'm like, who can pay this, you know? So I said, forget it. I'm going to our members. So we go to the church and I say off the pulpit, hey, does anybody have just I just want concrete and four walls. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it is. Give me concrete and four walls. And uh, all of a sudden, one of our members came up, Tom, and he's like, hey, I know a lady down the street that has this back house barn. Artists rent it out uh, to do music, to paint in there, to do all kinds of stuff. And it's empty right now. So if you guys want it. So we came over here. Lo and behold, a 1928 barn. This thing was built 1928, and there's still barn wood in here from the original. And uh, we came in, and it was absolutely trash. I mean, well, it was bad. It was a barn. Yeah. We put a new roof on. We put a bathroom in here. We built out a little kitchen. We built out an office. We resurfaced the floors. We painted everything. We reinforced the structure, and uh team about, like, 15 guys came over here from the church and we just worked on it uh, all day and uh, Ben and I and a couple of the other guys blood sweat and tears um, throughout the rest of the uh, the time fixing it up and making it work but 
Yeah, it's our little place, and this is a legacy barn. And uh, I think we've been here about five years. And so uh, it's been great for us. Bible studies happen here all week long. And um, we're doing the podcast in here. We shot all of our online church during the pandemic in here. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, that was before I I started coming. I, I came in June after... I, I think you guys started back up Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. So it was like three months later, mm-hmm. two months later that I... It was actually last week, a year ago, I looked it up. Wow. An old text message. I'm like, oh, I texted friends that I was checking out the church finally on like June 6th mm-hmm. last year. It's a multi-purpose use. You know, we do parties in here um, for the church, for the leadership. We've done... We This is a mini studio, you know, where we recorded all of our worship. Uh, we recorded sermons in here, and then obviously we have Bible studies going on in here. We have our basics roots class goes on in here. We have financial peace goes on in here. We have men's and women's groups. We have youth groups. We, you know, so it gets its use. Did you record all your Bible chants in here, uh, or was Bible, that before? Uh, that? Yeah, Bible chants were recorded when I was 22 years old. Okay, so that predates the barn a little bit. Yes, uh, <laughs> that thing is like 18 years old or something crazy like that. Yeah, so that was a long time ago. For those that don't know the Bible chants, uh, well, if you visit on a Sunday, you get to hear one. It's our benediction from uh, Numbers chapter 6, that uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, uh, may his face shine, shine upon you. you. Be gracious unto you and give you peace. Yeah. I was purposely not going to try singing it <laughs> because this would then be the last episode of this podcast. That's not the only one. There's how many of these are there? It's like there's like 40 or 50 of them. And uh, yeah, you can look them up on iTunes. You just go to the podcast section of iTunes, type in scripture worship and you'll see Josh Thompson show up. Don't make fun of me, though. So I'm literally 22 years old shouting at the top of my lungs in my buddy's bedroom. We're recording with Pro Tools. And uh, I don't know how many people have downloaded it, uh, but we made CDs and we passed them out. I mean, again, this is almost 20 years ago. And so it's been duplicated and passed on so many times. But um, yeah, yeah, I love them, you know, because while they're cheesy, uh, they sound funny. You actually do memorize scripture very quickly doing it. You're catechizing your own mind. You're, You're causing yourself, your heart and your mind to take on a scripture through song, which you can quote, but you can also sing and you can worship and you can pray through. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, we do at the men's group, we do like what, five or six of them. We have about probably 10 to 12 that we've worked through, but yeah, on a regular basis, we, we do about five or six each night. Yeah. And I found myself, I, I barely want to acknowledge it to myself, but I'll find myself just randomly playing it in my head mm-hmm. where all of a sudden it's like one of them is in my head and I'm like, how did that get in there? Mm-hmm. Instead of like a random song, it's scripture. If it wasn't set to the music, it probably would not have been that because mm-hmm. there's scripture that I've decided, oh, I want to memorize this verse. Mm-hmm. Try and memorize it. And it's like, I, I can't even remember if I could recite the, the verse right now. But the songs, like, I could probably do a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, so many times in life um, since I learned them, you know, where I'm by myself. And, uh, again, could be working through something, could be praying. Um, and all of a sudden, there's just kind of spontaneous um, breakout of singing one of those or chanting one of those songs or even quoting the scripture to myself. You know, it's... Uh, 
the other brothers who know these songs as well, uh, I have a brother, a pastor in Orange County, uh, who will call me and just start chanting on my voicemail. He just <laughs> leaves it for me. And uh, he does this one all the time. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul, I shall make her boast in thee, Lord. The, lo- the humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And uh, he will just go off uh, chanting that for 45 seconds or a minute and then just hangs up. But it's powerful, right? It's another brother singing over me the scripture, the word of God. And, you know, it erupts in here and we get it going and the guys are going off and it's it's just a it's a celebration time. It's a time of being edified and built up. And who would have known that chanting together can be so, I guess, encouraging. It's a form of fellowship almost, you know, like I could see a hundred men standing up together, chanting songs, looking around at each other, you know, just rejoicing in what the Lord's done and encouraging and building up each other. When you see another brother chanting that in your face or towards you, um, it's reinforcing. It's like rebar. I don't know. It just, it just, it establishes the structure of a man, that's for sure. Yeah, it was kind of interesting at my, I know I showed you the, the video of this at my birthday party. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our brothers was like, hey, let's do the... the right, the, right, that's the, right. What, what, do you, what do you call it? Not the pub yeah. song. The, yeah, yeah, this the, is First John 3, 1. Yeah, I call it, uh, I call it, it's almost like a, it sounds like a, a pirate's chant or something. There you go. And uh, as if we're on a pirate ship somewhere on some boat and we are just going off. And I say, everybody, grab your mugs, Grab your brewski, grab your root beer, grab your whatever you want to grab, and let's chant to the glory of God. And it just feels, again, like a, again, like we're on a pirate ship somewhere, chanting to the glory of God. And First um, John three one, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called sons of God. Yeah, it's a great chant. Well, it was so great because we had a handful of of guys that were chanting it mm-hmm. and half the group were not saved yeah. at least a good, like 25 to 45% of wow. the people at my party. And there's like 40 people there. Awesome. So it was a witness to at least like 10 to 15 to 20 people, That's cool. you know, saying like, what are these people doing? Right. And, and we're singing scripture to yeah. them. If we had a thousand men, if we had 10,000 men, if we had 50,000 men in a stadium chanting all at the same time, you'd break the stadium, you know? You can almost feel it as we even talk about it, how powerful that would be, chanting the word of God and all of these men hiding it in their hearts and encouraging each other with it. So I'm hoping there will be an outbreak of that. Um, we still got to figure it out. I got to find 100, 200 men. We need to find <laughs> some uh, cool-looking pub or library, all wood, you know, like, and we need to get in there. Or maybe uh, some cathedral and just chant at the top of our lungs and record that. And uh, that'd be a joy. Yeah. Even joy. just when we do it here in, in the barn yeah. on Wednesday nights, it's I remember at first I didn't know it really any mm-hmm. of the, the scripture references. Mm-hmm. The well, I, I knew some of the scripture references, but I didn't know them by heart. So I just listen and just having all the, the men's voices in unison, mm-hmm. even the ones that can't sing well like mine. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, I love it. I'm thankful for it. So I want to dial back a little bit. And I think this might uh, dovetail into our biblical study here. But I want to talk a little bit about like your early 
days as a Christian, like mm-hmm. how you came to Christ and and what those few formative years looked like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was, um, I, I'm raised in a Christian home. Um, I grew up, my dad's a worship leader, and uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal church of like 30 people and uh, called Believer's Faith Center. And uh, my dad, again, was, was, uh, was forced to play organ as a child and would transition into piano. He grew up, played the big organ. Uh, incredible. He can still play it. And my dad's an incredible musician, taught me and my brothers to play. But we grew up in the church. And I always thought, uh, look, I loved my Pentecostal family. Uh, they loved us very well. But they did some weird stuff that I totally didn't understand as a kid. I didn't know what was going on. I'm like, this, this is weird, you know? But they loved us well. I can I can say that they loved us, man. And and the 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 love of Christ was beaming through them, no doubt. But what it caused me to do as a teenager is get kind of like, I don't know. I thought God it was weird to some degree. I'm like, that's God. That's weird. You know, like I don't like that. So um, I wasn't exactly a hundred percent in. But uh, the first great moment and interaction I had with God was when a missionary from Sri Lanka had come to the church I was at, hmm. his name's Leslie Kegel. I still remember this day because it was so impactful. And he preached a sermon and was just basically telling testimony of what the Lord was doing in Sri Lanka and uh, how many family members had been martyred and or beaten for their faith and had given their lives for Christ. And I'm sitting over here in America like, what? These people are giving their whole lives for Jesus? And I was moved by that talk. And, uh, afterwards he said, if anybody wants to be prayed over, um, after the service, come down here if you need to receive some prayer. So I walked forward after the service said, would you pray for me? And he prayed for me and I'll never forget something happened that night where I believed on Christ more than I'd ever believed before. The next day I wanted to take my Bible to school. I was in Hmm. high school and I literally picked up my Bible that my dad had bought me and I took it to high school. And I'm probably like 17 years old at this point, 16, 17. And um, yeah, I became a radical from that point on. And I mean radical. I, I don't know what happened, but the Holy Spirit of God showed up for sure. But I did some crazy things as a young person uh, for the glory of Christ in my high school. We started a Bible club on campus. I was going to ask if you guys had one. Yeah, we started a Bible club. I would teach at it, me and my buddy. And um I was vice president of my school my senior year. So one time I decided to take, uh, we had access to butcher paper, you know, the big rolls of butcher paper that you, uh, you make signs out of. With the giant like marker, paint markers. That's exactly it. Yeah. So I decided to write the 10 commandments on this butcher paper and I posted it on the wall, literally 20 feet high. It covered the entire, in the school parking lot so that when everyone wow. showed up in the parking lot, they would see the 10 commandments. And I wrote examples of breaking the commandment under each one. <laughs> and, uh, the, the vice principal came up to me and said, Josh, you got to take that down. And I'm like, or it was the principal. You got to take it down. No, uh, I'm not going to take it down. No, you, you Josh, you got to take that down. You know, you can't do that. And I'm not going to take it down. Well, I might have to suspend you if you don't take it down. I'm like, what? I'm like this stubborn kid, you know, like <laughs> just being, just thinking I'm doing something great for the glory of God, which I hope you can use it, you know, or you did, but yeah, um, I didn't take it I, down. I remember going through that phase when I first, because yeah. I, I was going into my seventh grade year when I got saved. Okay. And I kind of did that entire thing where I was like on fire and in high school in the Christian club. And then when I felt the 
Christian club wasn't really strong. I tried starting rival Christian club. Right. <laughs> <laughs> tearing down their banners, you know, <laughs> That's funny. Uh, always did. Uh, our school had air bands okay. where you were basically you lip sync and perform to a song huh. and uh, you could do two songs. So all four years we did two Christian songs uh-huh. and it's a little cringe to look back on. Totally. Cause it was not something that was, uh, the talent wasn't quite there. Yeah, 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 sure. But it was still something that we're like, this is us serving yeah. the Lord. Yeah, we uh, we do crazy things, you know, and uh, and you know, we're trying to do it for the Lord, you know. But that that's that was who I was in high school. Um, I played football for four years. I was vice president of my school. It was a social experiment, mostly for me. Um, but these are some of my formative years. What really grabbed me was uh, I was working across the street at Stater Brothers a grocery store, bagging groceries. I'm like 17 again, 17 and a half now maybe. And Harvest Christian Fellowship was across the street, Pastor Greg Laurie's church. And I went over there on my lunch break. I'd never been there. Went in there and heard clear, crystal clear preaching. I never, no weirdness, just crystal clear preaching of the word of God. I'm like, wow, somebody's opening the Bible and just teaching it. We don't have any weirdness. And I was so encouraged by that. Not taking advantage of the gifts and... No, yeah, it was just nothing... It was just the word of God. You know, Greg's down to earth and his humor and all of those things. He's one of the greatest communicators, no doubt. So I was blessed by that. Um, Somebody invited me to a high school camp and I went. And the next camp, I became a camp counselor. And then before you know it, I was on staff as a, in the high school ministry and the rest is history, you know? So those were my formative years. Uh, Grew up Pentecostal. It was a four square church that Leslie Kegel spoke in. Then I stepped into Calvary Chapel with Greg Laurie. And I was there for about 15 years before we planted Legacy in Los Angeles. Yeah. Well, you've also talked a little bit about some struggles that you had. Sure. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, um, my life, uh, you know, it's crazy when I look back on all the trials and tribulation. And I mean, a lot of people suffer in life and they're all unique to us. But yeah, mine, they definitely formed who I am today. My mom passed when I was six years old. Um, she died in a car accident. Mm. And uh, we remember that night, uh, me and my brothers, the cop coming to our door, knocking on the door. I was six, uh, Jake was four, and Jesse was two. And so my dad was left with uh, three boys by himself. And he's a truck driver. So he had to be gone sometimes overnight or a couple days at a time. So my grandma stepped in to try to help raise us. So we didn't grow up with much. Um, we were the kids. Yeah, we just didn't have much growing up. Uh, we weren't we weren't allowed to ask for anything um, because we knew the answer was no. And uh, we worked through government food stamps and government food. And uh, we went to public school and we walked to school. We didn't know how bad it was, really. You know, we were me and my brothers were having a good time the whole time. Uh, running around. Would you say that's like the innocence of youth type of thing? Mm, yeah. What, what do you mean by that? It, a lot of times I, I saw something recently where it was like, we all think when we're kids, we think adults have the answers and then we become adults and we realize that we're just making it up and that no one has the answers Yeah. and we don't really see the bigger picture when we're younger. We only, we, we view things through our limited vision. Yeah. And so there's kind of a, not necessarily like a rose colored glass, but like you said, you don't know 
how bad things are. You mm-hmm. don't know that things could be better. So right. it's just the way it is. Right. Yeah. We had nothing to contrast it. Um, other than we knew other people had moms and we didn't, you know, so we didn't understand that. Um, we knew other people had cool stuff, you know, but really a, a godsend was that one of our buddies who grew up with across the street, um, he's basically our brother now, his name's Kyle. And it's like, he, he didn't have any brothers. And so there was three of us and, um, yeah, you know, he had the basketball court and all the fun, you know, sports and we'd go pool over at his house and video games. So we had a blast doing that. So that's why, you know, maybe we didn't we didn't notice how little we had. I mean, I guess we did at certain times, but it was offset by a lot of those things. So the Lord has blessed us as if you ask me or my brothers, like, how was your childhood? Looking back, we would say, man, it was pretty crazy. But in it, we didn't know how crazy it was. So, you know, into high school, uh, my dad lost his job. And so we lost the family car. Then he couldn't get to work. Then we lost the house. And so uh, we had to live in a hotel. I remember I just graduated high school and uh, my family, we were in a hotel for about three weeks because we didn't have any place to stay. My dad went and lived with one of his friends and me and my brothers all went and lived with our friends. So we, uh, we had to part ways as a family, um, basically at 18 years old. So this is right after, like within a year or two of you getting saved. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The Lord was there. And, uh, I don't know. My dad trusted the Lord through it all. He was just clinging on to the Lord. I was getting involved in the church. I was trying to go to, I got accepted to Cal State San Bernardino. I got accepted to a bunch of Cal States. I was trying to get in. I did school for a year, dropped out. Um, I couldn't figure it out. And I started working instruction and making money doing that. And then I was heavily involved in the church. I didn't have a together family. Um, we didn't have any of the good things in life other than what came from the outside. But we had the church and we had the Lord. And so um, me and my brothers have been on our own since then. Um, my, But we love our dad. We love each other. And uh, we still hang out and party and jam all the time when we get together. But yeah, that, that was a big one. Um, there were two more great... Uh, moments in life that basically, you know, we've really struggled through. The next was after being married, um, my beautiful wife, Katie, for six years, we basically realized through the process, we weren't able to have kids. And so, uh, it's a really hard, heavy burden to carry because of all things, you're like, God, don't you want me to disciple children? I want to do this. I want kids. I want to disciple kids. It almost seems like the people who want a family the most are tend to be the ones that have the hardest time having one. Sometimes, you know, and then you have people, you know, just like they don't want kids and they don't want to be pregnant and they don't, you know, all of that. And then you have people who are just loaded on drugs and they can get pregnant at the drop of a hat. And so yeah, you ask all those questions like, Lord, why can't we get pregnant? Like, what, what, is, what is going on here? Yeah, we... And it's uh, hard not to become bitter at God during that too. Yeah. Why would you say no to this? Or to take your own, like you actually see with, with Abraham, they didn't trust, you know, God's promise. So they're like, well, we'll do it our own way. And sure. And you do that and yeah, it might work, but you're going to cause a lot of drama, a lot of hurt. So we, um, we had to wait on the Lord and trust him through that process when uh, all of, you know, all the people around us who were near to us all got pregnant within the first year or two of marriage and they're all having kids. And here we are by ourselves and just wondering like, wow, I never thought in a million years this would be me. Maybe Lord, are you saying no? 
are you saying no, we're never going to have kids? Like I'm never going to see my image of my face or my attributes in a, in a child. Is that what you're saying? You kind of don't know how big of a deal it is until you're in it and you're just like sitting there and you had this idea that you were going to have a family, you're going to have grandkids that all that was going to happen and you realize it's not happening for you and it could never happen for you. You have to start thinking adoption and all of these other things and it's a whole world of, of things to work through. But it was a struggle um, because a lot of the things that I wanted or more hoping were ha would happen in life were happening for me. My dreams per se were coming true. But one of the big dreams of my wife is that she would just be able to have her own baby. And when you you have a wife and you can't do that for your wife, you know, you're basically ready to conquer any mountain and, and sail any sea for your family, for your wife. And you can't fix this one. It starts to break you. So those were that was a very heavy burden. And those who are working through that, even listening to this podcast, you know, you know, we, we know your struggle. We know what you're working through. We're praying for you. I want to encourage you. The Lord hears your prayers. He loves you. And he has a, the best plan in store, no doubt. But um, it is not easy. We, we mourn with you. And uh, we believe, you know, God's going to carry you through this season. This is a major one that we work through after uh, even through the church plant. A lot of people didn't know, but it was happening. And uh, the biggest weight that I carried, um, I don't know if you want to hear all this, Aaron. This is, this is a lot. I, I guess it's what you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, yeah. The biggest burden um, in, 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 the, in the most recent uh, time of my life is it was one uh, month into the church plant. We had planted the church. We were so excited. All these hundreds of people showing up. It was crazy. In Studio City, it's working in L.A., we're one month in and I don't have a worship leader that week. And so I'm like, man, who's going to lead worship? My guy can't do it. And so I called up my brother, Jesse, and I'm like, Jess, you got to come and lead worship. He's a great musician. So he's like, okay, let's do it. He drove out from actually Nevada to come and uh, lead worship for us. He's like, I can't find a keys player. And then he's like, I'm going to ask Jake, what do you say? And I'm like, yeah, let's do this. So he calls up my other brother, Jacob, and uh, who lived down in San Diego. And Jake drove up on that Sunday so it was the first time ever that me and my brothers were on stage ministering together all at the wow. same time. First time ever. My dad's in the crowd. It was fantastic. It was like my dad loves the Lord. You know, he loves worship. So my brothers are leading worship. I'm preaching. Everybody's there. I mean, it was so cool, right? Well, what I didn't know is that uh, two days later on a Tuesday morning, my brother Jess would call me and say, um, they can't find Jake. Um, he's, he's missing. He's gone. And I'm like, what? We were just with him on Sunday. What are you talking about? He was just leading worship on Sunday. No, he's gone. We found out Tuesday night they had found him. He jumped off the bridge in San Diego mm. and they had found him. He took his own life. And this is one month into the church plant. And I was just with my brothers on Sunday. I thought this was the beginning to them leading worship with me and us ministering together. And, uh, yeah, it was, it basically stole all of the excitement out of the church plant. It took everything away. It was like, when I reflect on it, even now it's, it's almost like the carpet being pulled so hard that really you, you can do nothing, but just be on your knees and just be like, God, you, you got to show up or I'm just going to, you know, fold. Like, I'm just forget this whole thing. I don't want to do this anymore. It's not fun. It was the most difficult time, I, I mean, for sure in ministry, for sure, yeah, in my life, because I'm a pastor, I, uh, I work hard to save people, 
And when you can't save your own brother, you know, you ask all the questions why you, you, you're supposed to be building a church. Hey, how are you going to build a church now and think through all of that? So I preached the next Sunday and I preached a sermon called, um, I'll see you soon. And, uh, I did his funeral the following week. It was crazy because though it was so dark and overwhelming, um, I felt the spirit of God there and I felt legacy as a whole, the church as a whole go like this. It was like the suffering and the pain in my life basically brought us all together as a family. And before you know it, people are now trying to encourage me. They're trying to pray for me. They're trying, and they're all concerned and they're all together. They're doing what you felt like your job was to do to them. It's amazing. You know, it was amazing. So it did steal all the excitement out of the church plant, but it, I don't know how else to say it. It like sobered up my mind to a place where I was like, okay, this is not a game anymore. Like we are here to minister in LA. We're here yeah. uh, to love and serve people. We are here to preach the gospel and see people come to Jesus. And so the mission was more clear more than ever before, but yeah, man, it's been a lot, you know, it's been a lot over the years. I didn't realize how much it was. And then there's all the mini storms, you know, all the way yeah. through all of that. But those are kind of the four major storms of my life to this point. Um, and I'm sure there's some more on the horizon. The Lord is our anchor. He carries us through the storm. He is the captain. He is the guide. And uh, he will He will carry us through. Everyone will go through storms. Everybody will go through pain. But how are you going to get through it uh, without the Lord? I almost feel like what you're describing with what happened at the funeral and then also with the church just kind of closing ranks around yeah. you and and probably each other. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that uh, this is something that obviously the enemy meant for evil. Right. And but God had designs to make it for good. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to accept it as being a part of God's ultimate plan. It's hard to accept it as being a part of God's ultimate story. Um, it's very difficult to explain the details of it all and how that works into God's plan. But, you know, the cross is difficult to figure out as well, you know, because mm-hmm. if you're standing there as a disciple watching the Messiah be crucified and beaten before you, you're looking to the sky saying, how can this be a part of the story? You're the author, you know, like you're the finisher of our faith. What are you doing? But looking back, you see uh, how God can use and... Um, Yes, use it for his glory, use it for ultimate good. And of course, the cross bringing salvation to the whole world. But yeah, for me, again, the the Lord definitely used all the pain and all the suffering in my life for good. I mean, it's prepared me for thousands of storms in the future. Uh, it allows me to be able to sympathize, empathize with other people. It also um, helps me to see God's goodness as he carries us through the storm. So it gives me uh, confidence that he will do so in the future. Yeah. What the enemy meant for evil, trying to tear everything down, tear my family down, tear my brother's family down. Um, God can take it all, all the broken pieces. He can put them back together and make it for good. Well, there, there's a certain aspect too, where you had just come to Los Angeles and I wholeheartedly believe that LA because of Hollywood is the front line in the spiritual war battle right because those working in the industry of which you have a lot of members of your congregation that you're ministering to 
they can influence the culture of the entire world. Right. That's why I am here in Los right. Angeles. That's my mission. That's my, you know, goal to to find a way to influence the culture in some way through my work. Mm-hmm. Coming here, like you're a target on the back, right? And Satan's absolutely going to try and take you out. He's going to try and destroy the good work that you're set out to do by right. ministering to the people of Hollywood right. and which, in, well, the people of Los Angeles, which includes the people of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This absolutely is something that I, it's probably impacted. Like you said, it, you, you realize it's, it's not a game, mm-hmm. you know, this is serious. Mm-hmm. And so is that probably about where you kind of solidified your approach, the sermons with the, you know, the conviction and, and the, the condemnation? Um, I would say that, um, again, it definitely, it narrowed my focus long-term, that's for sure. Like I could see, I could see that this was an uphill climb and this was a war and this is not a game anymore. You know, this is not just fun, you know, exciting. You're not playing church. Mm -mm. Yeah. This is real life. And this is eternity for people. And, even my family's, you know, now heavily involved. And so, but, you know, I, I, I would also say that that first year, like, sent me into kind of a, a tailspin. I mean, to be honest, you know, like, yeah. I'm trying to figure out a church plant, I'm trying to figure out if we'll be taken care of financially, I'm trying to figure out where we're going to get chairs from, I'm trying to figure out how to get the projector up. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to cancel people in the middle of that who's going to, who's going to stay faithful, who's going to leave the church, who's going to try to tear down the church. I mean, there's just so much stuff in the first two years. It's like starting a business in LA. You're trying to like gain your footing, you know, and you don't know your rhythms. You don't know what's going on and then throw a giant bomb in the middle of the whole thing. Um, when we thought we had everything together, it's like, now here's a bomb, you know, emotionally. And so it was hard to get back on track and I don't think I really got fully back on track probably till year three, to be honest. Um, year three is when we had lost a lot of our team initially that had come out. A lot of the brothers, there's probably about 15 of us or 20 of us who were coming out to plant the church. And majority of them were not able to make it um, because LA's hard. Yeah. How do you find work? How do you get a place to stay? How do you bring kids out here? How do you afford a place to stay once you find it? Totally. You know, so it's a whole nother world. And so um, we lost a bunch of people. And then, uh, yeah, it was about year three. I kind of found my footing. And uh, you try to please a bunch of people. It doesn't work. And you say, forget this. I'm going to please God alone. And uh, I'm going to get focused on him. And uh, then, then the magic happens. Yeah. Well, I feel like we need to transition into our scriptural study because yeah, we've, we've talked a lot longer than I expected to, but this has been some really good stuff. Yeah. And I almost feel like, you know, we, we kind of danced around one of the, the key verses in the story yes. of Joshua, Joseph, uh, Joseph. Why did I say Joshua? Well, that's, that's not even that's, on my screen. Cause that's my name. <laughs> that's why you said it. <laughs> yes. The, the story of Joseph uh, covers quite a bit, but um, you know, let's let's give just kind of a a Cliff Notes version of of who he is and dive into the scripture where necessary. Yeah. So Joseph is 
He's the youngest brother, I believe, of 12. And um, he's the favorite of his dad. And his brothers were jealous of him because his dad made him a, a coat of many colors, coat and technicolor. He would wear his coat and dance around, and his brothers would get all mad at him, you know, because he had the favor of his father. One day, Joseph says, I had a dream. And I had a dream, and the dream showed that all of you were bowing down to me. And the brother's like, what? We're going to kill you, dude. What are you, what are you talking about? We're going to bow to you. He says, yeah, not only you, but also mom and dad are going to bow down to me too. And they're like, oh, forget this kid. You know, we're fed up with him. So one day. Even dad rebuked him for that. Even, yeah, right, right. Uh, and he, right, he was probably out of line as a son for doing that. But the truth is he actually had those dreams. They were real. So he's just telling them what happened. I don't know how long of time period had gone by, but one day in the field, the brothers uh, realized there's an opportunity to get rid of their little brother who's annoying and whom they hate. And they wish they could, you know, get rid of him because he's going to be pulling into their inheritance and who knows what. Especially being their favorite, that probably played into this a lot. Totally. Absolutely. Even though he was the youngest. Yes. And so they find a pit and they throw him in this pit. Um, They rip off his jacket and um, they see a caravan, a slavery caravan coming by and they sell him to that caravan. And uh, they take blood and put it on his coat and take it back to his father and say, Joseph is dead. And father weeps, of course, you know, his favorite boy is dead. The brothers hid this and Joseph, as you had spoken about earlier, gets sent off into slavery, into prison. And uh, he's sitting in prison for 20 years. He also stepped into Potiphar's house for a little while where um, he, he gained favor by just loving the Lord. And everything that, that he touched, you know, basically turned to gold. It succeeded. It seemed, that's right. The favor of the Lord was upon him. And he ends up um, in Potiphar's house and the wife likes him because he's handsome. And uh, she tries to get him to sleep with her. And Joseph is like, I can't do this and defile the Lord. I'm not going to do this. And he runs out of the house Um, I believe naked, uh, he loses his robe and he's running outside. And when Potiphar comes home, who's a general of, uh, or a chief in, uh, Pharaoh's army, his wife says he tried to rape me. And so, uh, he gets accused of rape though. We know it wasn't true. And, uh, he gets sent into prison and he sits there for almost 20 years. And in prison, there he is wondering why he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He's wondering what happened at Potiphar's house. How could he be accused of rape? He's wondering, what am I doing sitting here in prison, wasting my life away? Why would you do this to me, God? Why would you allow all this to happen to me? Um, What did I do to deserve this? I didn't do anything. I was just trying to be a good boy to my dad. And uh, we know through a series of events that about 20 years or so, um, he interprets some dreams for a baker and a cupbearer. And uh, one of them remembers him before Pharaoh. And uh, as Pharaoh's trying to interpret his own well, dreams. the other one couldn't remember because the prophecy got, came true that he was beheaded. He got killed. <laughs> yes. And uh, the other is standing before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, nobody can interpret my dreams. What's the problem with all you people, all you magicians? Nobody can interpret my dreams. And uh, is it the cupbearer? I believe the cupbearer sitting there says, there was a guy in prison 
named Joseph who interpreted my dreams when I was in there. And uh, he actually remembered him. But at first he did not. But finally he remembered him. And uh, by the grace of God, Joseph comes and interprets Pharaoh's dream. And uh, he says, I can't believe the wisdom and the favor that God's given you. I will make you my right-hand man. And he becomes king of Egypt. And because he interpreted a dream about a famine that was about to come on the land of Egypt, and Pharaoh didn't know what to do about it, but Joseph had the keys of wisdom given to him by God through the interpretation of the dream. So all of a sudden, Joseph has all the power. He is literally the king of Egypt because of these these dreams. Very interesting, though. I mean, when you contrast sitting in prison for 20 years, wondering why you're there, and all of a sudden, magically, you're the king of Egypt. And you have a plan in place to save the land. Well, and I actually wrote down his response to Pharaoh. Mm. Like, despite all of that, 20 years in prison, Mm -hmm. being sold by his brothers, Mm -hmm. uh, accused of a crime he didn't commit. And his response to Pharaoh, this is in uh, Genesis 41, 16. He said, it is not in me. God will answer concerning the welfare of Pharaoh. Mm. Like he, he directed it back to God. He didn't mm-hmm. take, he didn't go, yes, I can interpret it. He's like, no, this is God's going to give me the answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He trusted the Lord all the way through his trial. And I can imagine, I can't even imagine being sold into slavery and then sitting in prison. Your brothers hate you. Your dad thinks you're dead and you're sitting there. I mean, it's all the bad news compiled, compiled, compiled. And then the magic moment when Pharaoh says, you're king of Egypt, you're my right hand guy. I mean, talk about mind blown. You know, you're sitting there like, how in the world did I get here? The story continues on. There is famine in the land. And so all of the people have to come to Egypt to get food, to buy food and grain and all the rest. And Joseph has stored up all the grain in all of Egypt. So he holds the keys to all the grain, all the food. And lo and behold, one day, guess who comes walking up to the palace? It's his brothers that were sent by dad to go and get food for the family. And Joseph looks down the steps and he sees his brothers. And the text says that as soon as he saw them, he ran into his room and he wept. And uh, he came back out. He has a conversation with them and uh, he hides his identity and uh, he plays some tricks on them. He, uh, he fills their bags with grain. I believe he hides something in one of their bags uh, that was from Pharaoh or from his palace. And uh, then he sends his guards to go find them after they had gone, tried to make their trip back home. They find them. They open the bag and they say, see, you stole from Joseph or you stole from the king. And so uh, they had to go back. And he says, since you stole from me, I'm going to keep uh, one of your brothers and he holds him there, and uh, there's a there's a lot of details in the story I'm forgetting, but uh, basically they go back to their dad, and the dad is bummed because uh, they've lost Benjamin, the young boy, I believe, or uh, he he will be taken if they do not uh, come back truthful, and so long story short, they end up making their way back, and uh, on this trip back, uh, Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. And um, it's a powerful moment. It's a beautiful moment because Joseph had the opportunity to strike down his brothers who, who threw him in the pit, beat him up, ripped the jacket off his back, put blood on it, took it to their dad and said, the boy's dead, sold him into slavery 
and basically abandoned him. Um, he could have turned around and crushed them, but um, he doesn't. Um, again, in tears, he's overwhelmed. He doesn't know what to do, and he eventually tells his brothers, it's me, it's your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And of course, the brothers' jaws hit the ground. They cannot believe it's their brother. Somewhere in the text, it says that they, he falls on them and weeps. You know, He says the words we had said earlier, what you meant for evil, God ultimately meant for good, and uh, has brought me to this place to basically save the land and save the people. Um, it's a beautiful story of redemption, and it's a, it's a beautiful lesson for life. There's like a couple of things that I was just trying to look it up here. I'm, I'm not finding, but you said that he was in prison for 20 years. Yeah, that's what they speculate. It was around 20 years in prison. In uh, chapter 41, we find out that he was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, mm. which means that and it was during the famine, which was after seven years of good harvests. Mm. So he's around 30 seven, 38, maybe mm-hmm. around 40 at this point. Mm-hmm. But if he'd been in prison for 20 years and he had served probably a good chunk of time in, in Potiphar's house, mm-hmm. he was sold into slavery around eight or nine years old. As a kid, yeah. That takes what his brothers did to a whole other level. It's not like you've got some you know, 18, 20 year old that's saying you're all going to worship me. No, you've got a nine year old, nine year olds say weird things. Right. Totally. Excuse the interruption to the conversation, but I wanted to take a moment to address what I just said here because I got it wrong. After recording the episode, I looked into this more. The 20 year estimate that Josh mentioned isn't how long Joseph was in prison, but the total time between when he was sold into slavery by his brothers and then again reunited with his family. Genesis 37.2 actually tells us his specific age when he had his dreams. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. Genesis 41 tells us that he was 30 years old when entering the service of Pharaoh before the seven years of abundance. Then in Genesis 45, we see that the famine had been lasting for two years when his brothers came to buy grain. That makes Joseph around 39 years old, or 22 years since he had been sold into slavery. How long was Joseph in prison? We don't know for sure. There are 13 years between being sold into slavery and interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, and we know that the last two of those were in prison. It's safe to say that it was likely somewhere between five and 10 years with the rest being in Potiphar's house, but we can't definitively know based on scripture. Why am I addressing this when it's not really a major doctrinal issue? Because I don't want to mislead anyone even a little bit. And it's important to point out when we get things wrong, even when they're as small as this. And while my point of Joseph being super young and eight-year-olds saying weird things doesn't quite apply, Joseph was still a youth, and his older brother still wanted to kill him simply for being his father's favorite and sharing what he had in his dreams. Now let's get back to the conversation. And they reacted so negatively. They're like, let's kill him. No, let's at least sell him off. Mm -hmm. Let's get rid of him. It's really sad, and it it does add another layer to the story, you know, when you think about the oldest brother 
you know, not stepping in and stopping the whole thing and uh, taking care of his youngest brother is all jealousy, you know? I mean, he, he stopped him from being killed. He, he stepped in and said, well, let's not kill him. Let's just get rid of him. But right. he didn't say what we're doing is wrong. Right. No one out of 11 brothers, no one said this is wrong. Right. Yeah. It's wild that none of the brothers stepped up to take care of their little brother, their little brother, their little guy. And um, that they were all jealous enough or envious enough um, to let him be sold. But the bigger picture is that could it be that God was allowing all of this to happen just so that it was part of the plan, story and path so that he would make it to Egypt? And the answer is yes. What you meant for evil, God actually meant for good. He was actually working this out. And that is a very difficult thing to say in life, period. You can't say it when you're being sold into slavery. What you may mean for evil right now, yeah. God means for good. Yeah. Okay, let's go into slavery. You know, like nobody's saying that. Nobody's saying that when a family member dies. Nobody's saying that when you lose something that you poured your life into. No, nobody's saying that. Um, when something doesn't go the way that you're hoping, um, in those moments, you're not saying, uh, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. You're saying, this is evil, and this is terrible, and I can't believe this is happening to me, and how am I going to get through it? But on the other side, when Joseph is standing there as king, he's able to say, God meant this for good. And now look at brothers, you're here with me. And And he probably wouldn't have been able to say it until he was in that moment, too. That's right. And I know I brought this up like as we were talking before we sat down, but one of the things that jumped out to me as I was reading through the story last night was how Joseph had resigned himself into never seeing his family again Mm. when when he has his children. Mm. And Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh Mm. for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble Mm. and all my father's household. Mm. He put them out of his mind. Right. He basically was like, well, I I can't change that. So I'm going to just move on from this point forward. And he just kept trucking on and then didn't real. I think probably didn't even really deal with some of the stuff. And then that's why when he saw his brothers and, and specifically his closest brother, Benjamin, that they shared a mother that he had to leave the room. He wept. He wept. And I think he realized it probably was that moment that he was like, I can't. He probably had, well, it said he had forgotten him. So he hadn't been thinking about revenge, but who knows what he would have thought of, like if he had ever run into them again. I don't think he ever thought he would. No, I don't think so. I don't think he ever thought he was going to see them again. And so that's why he was so surprised and shocked. And that's why he wept. And um, but but you you can feel the emotion in the story, not just through the crying, but through really the storyline that there was the brothers were so mean. And on their end, there was no reconciliation. And they were in fear when they saw Joseph because they thought he was going to kill him. Like, oh, my gosh, it's our brother. Once he revealed his, his identity, they thought they were dead. But Joseph, God had already worked in his heart. And he's like, no, I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to let all of this go. I'm going to bless you. And he gets to save dad. He gets to save the family. He gets to bring them to Egypt. He gets to do all of that for his family, even though they did all that against him. It's so Jesus. It's so the gospel. It's so good. 
It is the story of redemption. It's the story of grace. You know, it is very difficult. It is very difficult to honor and bless and show favor to somebody who's done such wrong to you. The fact of the matter is we have done such wrong to God. We have done such wrong to the Lord Jesus. And he has turned around and blessed us with forgiveness, with the gift of heaven, with blessings and promises. He is Joseph. He is the greater than Joseph. He is the one who gave Joseph that heart to want to forgive his brothers and to make things right and to do it in the manner in which he did. It's a beautiful story of pain and suffering and God's ultimate plan of redemption. Regardless if we're working through some pain and suffering even now, God is going to work it for his glory. He has a plan for good. He has, it's not just wasted pain. Uh, I remember Pastor Greg told me that a long time ago. You know, he lost his son in a car accident. Mm. I remember him telling me after my brother had died, he said, uh, don't waste your pain. He said, don't ever waste your pain. And uh, I thought that was so good because um, sometimes we just want to stuff it down and push it out. But if we can use the pain for God's glory, if we can use it to minister to others, um, if we can use it even to see God's redemptive plan long-term that he's working to restore and make all things right, um, it reminds us of heaven, it reminds us of his grace, it reminds us of his mercy. So it's all good stuff, you know, it's all, but it's hidden. It's hidden in the pain. I kind of wonder too, you know, again, like reading between the lines of the scripture, it's, it's not written there, so we can't necessarily preach it, but we can sure. speculate Yeah, with how he reacted specifically to Benjamin. Yeah. Like there, there's not even just the, the him weeping at the side of him, but, uh, there was something about, uh, he threw them a, a meal, but I think it was before he revealed who he was. Mm, that's right. And he gives extra portions to Benjamin. That's right. And I'm kind of wondering, I can imagine if the, since they shared a mother, if the rest of the brothers had always like ribbed Benjamin's like, be careful or we'll do to you mm-hmm. like we did to, mm-hmm. to Joseph. And mm-hmm. if even like while Joseph was still there, if it was like, oh, you're the, the dreamer's brother. Mm-hmm. And he was always probably treated like the second least favorite. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of one of the reasons why he may have thrown a little extra. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was testing them. You know, he said he's basically saying give the youngest brother the largest portion because he's the favorite now of father. And let's see how the brothers react. If they are, if their heart is still hardened, will they treat him the way that they treated me? And so he was testing them. He was trying to see how their hearts were. And, um, and it's the same thing with the, uh, you know, with, with the, the, the gold in the, in the, uh, in the rice sack or whatever, the grain sack. He hid those things in there. He was doing these little testing games to try to see where their heart was at. It, were they going to just leave their brother again? Yeah, or were they going to make things and right? And then was come up with changed? some story or were they? But we see that they went back to their father and said, no, this is, he's being held. We need to go do something about it. We need to go back. And their father, I mean, he just broke, you know, he must have just broke. Like I've lost Joseph and now Benjamin what is wrong with you guys? What have you done? And uh, it's such a great story because it's all pushing towards, it just keeps pushing more and more and more pressure uh, towards this this amazing moment of redemption, this amazing moment of grace. Is there anything else on, on this topic here? No, I mean, it's a great story. Um, I love the story overall. Um, and I... I love that God can take our broken pieces of life and that he can make something beautiful out of them, you know? That's uh, that's my favorite part of the story. It's 
my favorite part of this whole story, I guess, of the Bible is that that's kind of the plan of God, and they're hidden in each of these stories, and one of them is Joseph. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Eternal Impact. I feel incredibly privileged that Josh would share his story with us. From his mother's death at an early age and losing the family home, to he and his wife struggled to conceive a child and his brother taking his own life. These stories are difficult to hear, but you may relate to one or more of them. You may be going through that season now. You may see Joseph's life in your own. As we talked about and showed today, God can use the hard times to accomplish something greater. He intends it for good. Don't waste your pain. In our next episode, we will be talking with another leader at Legacy City Church, Aaron Stevens, and diving into the parable of the sower. Please don't miss it, and make sure to subscribe and share this show with your friends. For more information or to join our email newsletter, visit our website at eternalimpact.show. Until next episode, I am Aaron Matthew Kaiser, and this is Eternal Impact.